Welcome to Creating Your Happy Place, a podcast that explores what it takes to create your happy place and then empowers you to do whatever it takes to get happy at home. I'm Rebecca West, host of Creating Your Happy Place and author of the book, Happy Starts at Home, and I'm so glad you're here today. Our guest today has had a challenging relationship with home over the last few years. When she and her husband bought their first home together down in Texas, it ended up getting flooded out three times. And after the third time, they decided it was probably better to start again somewhere new. And they moved into a tiny home on her parents' property in Oregon, only to have to evacuate when fires threatened to burn it all down this summer. I was really curious to know how having her home threatened and destroyed multiple times affects how she sees home and if she still thinks it's worthwhile to invest time and energy into creating a home. I'm going to let her tell her own story. So let me start by welcoming to the show, Sarah Siegley. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. I'm so excited to have this conversation because I am deeply curious about what this was all like to go through. And you said to me that right now you're living tiny on your parents' property with your husband, Stephen, and your dog, Zoe, in Oregon. And you run a bookkeeping company there called ULC Business Solutions. But I wanna start a little bit further back with your first home together down in Texas. Tell me, why did you choose that home? What did you love about it? So actually we found it while we were walking the dog. And it was just, it was close to my mother-in-law. It was, you know, in a good location between our two jobs. So the commute was about the same. So it just seemed like the perfect location for us. Good size, you know, just like, this is it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it, it was for lease at the time. So we rented it for a year. And then when the lease was over, we bought it. And so should have started your dream, but unfortunately, yes. <laughs> it turned out to be a bit of a nightmare. So you, I think you did some property improvements when you got, when the house was finally your own, right? What kind of changes did you make at first? Mostly it was just kind of cosmetic things. There were some, you know, draperies and things that they had been custom designed for the windows, but it was a bit older design than we would than we would like, you know. So we changed some of that out, wallpaper out of the bathrooms, just small things like that. Just making so, the place your own. Yes. Yeah, so nothing major until after the flooding started. So tell us about, well, first of all, did you know your home was in a, like, was it in a flood zone? What did you know about so the property? It was in a flood zone, but it hadn't flooded for 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. So naively, we're thinking, well, they must have fixed whatever was the problem then. It's obviously not an issue anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, 100-year floodplain. So what? We've got a good 75 years left. Right. <laughs> so you took a gamble. So, so we did know. And we did have flood insurance. It was required okay. being in the floodplain. So, so there you know. are. I guess some weather started. Yeah, there was some heavy rain, which happens often, you know, just north of Houston. So we were about a mile from a creek. So normally we wouldn't see it so close to our home, but sometimes it would get, you know, down the road from us. There would be some water in the road, stuff like that. But it was about eight months after we bought the house and it just kept coming closer and closer and we're like, okay, well, I think we're going to have to leave, you know, <laughs> and we were totally unprepared. We didn't, you know, it's like, oh, well, should we pack stuff? 
where are we going to take it? What are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of just got ourselves together, a very minimal amount of things, and drove over to my mother-in-law's, which mm-hmm. just around the corner. And then we kind of made trips back and forth until we couldn't get to the house anymore, wow. just grabbing whatever. So we ended up with random things and <laughs> without <laughs> other things. But that first time it flitted about four feet. So anything that we'd put up on the counters and everything that was thankfully saved. But the whole first floor was flooded. Is it, was it a one floor house? Or it was a one story. So you go, oh my gosh, I guess floods happen. Mm-hmm. You the, the waters recede. And what happens next? Yes. So then we had, we're like, well, okay, we'll, you know, take out the bottom four feet of drywall, get that put back in, get moved back in. It'll be great. (laughs) We'll just start over. This is it. And you figure now you definitely have a hundred years on the clock. Yes. Yes. So (laughs) they, a remediation company came in, you know, to clean everything out, make sure that we don't get mold or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Cause that's a concern, you know, get black mold and you know, dangerous. So they'd just gotten everything dried out and cleared out, you know, dragging out all of our carpet, taking out <laughs> all of that. And then months later, it floods again. Wow. And then it goes all the way up this time. So eight feet. Wow. So your house is underwater completely yes. at this point. Yes. You can just see the roof at the top. Right. And well, at least we have everything out, but now we have to start the whole process over of getting the remediation team out there and taking out all the drywall. And then you have to do, you know, we do all the electrical, we do Mm -hmm. everything pretty much. And And did your flood insurance cover both of these incidents or how did that work with the insurance? So flood insurance is all backed by FEMA. So there's some more red tape I feel, than maybe just regular homeowner's insurance. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a process. You have to list everything you own. And I mean, they want details. You have to list every item, how long you've had it. And and right in the midst of it, you don't think, well, I don't know. What do I own? What, What is there? And they basically assign a value to that and deduct it, you know, down to what they think is... A better price so it's meant to they say to get you back in your home but not necessarily to where it was at before mm-hmm. but livable right so that you're not out on the streets but you're certainly not living right. in a lap of luxury after right and and it and especially with the two since they they had been just over a month apart that mm-hmm. so they weren't within the same 30 days they were counted as two different claims, hmm. even though it was right, you know. So yeah. then you have to file everything for the first claim, and then you have to file everything for the second claim. And then there's some overlap because different levels of walls and yeah. stuff like that. So it it was definitely a process, and it did take over a year before we got everything finalized and you were in your I think you early what early 20s how old were you at the time oh I wish (laughs) uh (laughs) no I was early 30s okay but still quite young I mean Mm -hmm. having to learn all this as you go 
Yes. <laughs> I guess you didn't know anything about FEMA and flood insurance and no. for any of this, right? No. And then trying to get information and then the whole area, you know, they had flooded. So then you're trying to get a hold of anybody. You can't get a hold of anybody. Mm-hmm. Sit on hold forever and try to get what information you can, try to get what's available online. So are you, Um, and are you having to just pay for things out of pocket and use your credit cards? Because the money's, you you need a place to live, but the money's not coming to you. How do you, how did you juggle that? So with, with those floods, we did just stay, we stayed with my mother-in-law at first. And then we stayed with my sister-in-law because she had some extra space and extra room and things. And, and we just did that because to to try to get housing assistance or anything while it wasn't a federally declared disaster, it's pretty much non-existent or it's not enough to cover staying anywhere. It's a very small portion of what it would cost. And I had talked to FEMA about that too. I said, you know, you're offering me this, but we can't even get a studio apartment for this. We can't stay in a motel for this. Like, there's nowhere that we can go for this price even and they basically said that's what we can do and at the same time we're still paying our mortgage we're still paying all of that you know they don't care they they still want their money too yeah so you were very lucky to have family we we were we were very lucky to have that a lot of people didn't and it was just really hard for them because they don't have the assistance that they need and you said that one of the differences is that it wasn't declared a federal emergency. So the when we're listening to the news and, and we're hearing these different like declarations and labels, these these labels have a real impact on the people who are going through the disaster. They do. There's a lot more resources available. The processing goes a bit faster. There's just more help directed at that. When it's federally yes. labeled a federal disaster. Yes. Got it. So speaking of federal disasters, I think you said the third time you flooded out was because of a hurricane? It was. It was. So how long, how long was the time between flood number two and flood number three? So let's see. We owned the house for eight months. And then there was flood number one and then flood number two. Mm-hmm. And then we were in the house for about eight months. And then Hurricane Harvey hit. And it was actually right after we got married, we came back from our honeymoon and about two weeks later, Harvey hit. Wow. So then after going through everything with the first ones, with the insurance and with the contractors and finally getting everything situated, because like I said, it did take eight months before we were back in our house. Mm Mm-hmm. We're like, we don't want to do that again, <laughs> you know, but thankfully the claims process was quicker with that, again, because it was federally declared. Mm-hmm. So that went faster. We were able to get housing assistance for something we could at least afford. I mean, something much smaller than we had, but, but we didn't own anything anymore. So <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know, just the three of us, me and my husband and the dog. <laughs> so. Yeah. And so a couple of questions came to my mind. So first of all, did you sell it normally? Did you sell it through some sort of a program? Like what happened with the house and what, how did you decide it was time to, to, to move out? When we moved back in, 
we had kind of had discussions like if this happens again, even though it's not supposed to, but Mm -hmm. we've already seen it twice. So if this happens again, we can't go through that with this house again. And we, we would just move, you know, Mm -hmm. we, we couldn't deal with having it rebuilt again. And then, you know, there's also concerns with, well, how many times are we going to have to do this? Yeah. You know, if it happens again, are we just going to keep doing this? That's too much. <laughs> so you already uh, sort of had an exit strategy in mind. We, we did. We didn't really know where we would go to, but mm-hmm. we knew that we wouldn't stay there. Mm-hmm. So then how did you go about, I mean, I, I imagine it could be very hard to sell a house that keeps flooding. You would think, (laughs) but we were on the wait list for the county to buy us out, but the people across the street had been on the wait list for eight or 10 years. Wow. So we weren't holding a lot of hope out for that, but we obviously needed to get out from under it if we were going to move somewhere else, you know, otherwise we've got that debt, we've got that payment. So we did sell it regularly. There were people who wanted to go in. They were all over our neighborhood wanting to buy houses that had flooded so that they could flip them and live in them or rent them. And we were just very surprised. (laughs) And were you able to like, like it was just a normal sale, normal asking price, normal negotiations. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, it was less than what would normally sell for if it was a complete house, but. <laughs> oh. So you didn't put any work into it after no. Harvey. You just said, Mm-mm. take it as it is. Yes. Hmm. We had it cleaned out and, and that was it. So then you said, all right, new start. We're going to Oregon. And you had a, I think you had some time of not having disasters destroy your house, right? How long did you live in Oregon before this summer? We lived, so we moved here summer of 2018. That's right. About two years before. Two good years. We had a little bit of a break. And then the fires came. Yes. Tell us about that. It was crazy (laughs) because we had, you know, when we moved here, we thought, well, you know, we've got that behind us. And then all of a sudden there's fires and it's like, okay, <laughs> something new. We normally have water. But... Mm-hmm. And had your, had the, the so this is your parents' property, had that been threatened by fire? Is this, a, is this something that happens a lot in this area? No, no. When there were fires last year, it was more like in the gorge area between mm-hmm. Oregon and Washington. And it wasn't, it wasn't by us. This time it was, it was... They have a map where you can measure. So I think the furthest it was from us was about four miles. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it was, you know, within a mile or two of the house. So, so it was very scary. And then trying to guide my parents through that, like, because you've been there. Yes. And then they had the same, I guess, naivete that we did like, oh, well, the house will be fine. And then we're in full mode. No, the house is going to burn down. You have to (laughs) prepare for that. (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't happen, but grab what's important. What did you guys grab and what, how was it different from when you were more naive? So after, after Harvey, when, when we lost all of that, we just grabbed, you know, our most treasured things, you know, family heirlooms or just 
you know, things that we've thinking, you know, we can't live without this. We mm-hmm. need this with us. And since then, we've, we've been very, I would say, intentional about things that we add to our home. Like, we don't just go and buy things on a whim and have a bunch of things. It's more, do we really want this? Is this mm-hmm. going to bring us joy? Is it something that we want in our home? Because although we would like to some day not live in a tiny situation, we still feel like like a core thing, you know, like a core set of items that would just be most special to us. And that's all that we grab. That's really interesting. So you're, it sounds like you're actually saying that after having your homes destroyed, you actually have, it sounds like fewer things in your home, mm-hmm. but more important things in your home. Am I hearing that right? Yes. Yes. And, and it seems like that might heighten the the intensity of the or the fear of, of having things destroyed because you you know yeah sure there's fewer things to grab but now they're all meaningful to you how do you balance that well thankfully there's not a lot of it so <laughs> <laughs> it was easy enough to grab we keep all of our like all of our important documents are just in a plastic filing tote mm-hmm. so they're easy to grab easy to go and then the other things like our most important things are kept close together mostly for these things so we don't have to spend time searching for them which kind of seems a depressing way to live as we're saying this out loud but do do you feel kind of like you're always it's sort of like that adrenaline flight or, or fight kind of a thing do you feel like you're always ready to run and you can't just settle in I do feel like that's true sometimes yeah you know, because having happened so many times and then also having happened here mm-hmm. where thankfully nothing was destroyed, but it's still the same uncertainty. Yeah. Then, yes. So, I mean, we immediately, you know, we're put back in that mode of, okay, we have to grab it and we have to just realize that every, you know, in our minds, everything else is just gone. Right. Absolutely. So how do you then create a sense of home for yourself so that you don't feel completely untethered? It's a work in progress, I think. We're still kind of working through that. Sometimes it seems like, no, we shouldn't have anything. We should just, you know, have our small things. But then it's like, that's not really a way to live either because you want to have things that are around you that make it a nice place to be and a comfortable place to be. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really just, like I said, a, a work in process, a journey through. Yeah. And the fires were just a few months ago. I mean, not even. Yes. So it's all very fresh still, I imagine. Yes. It was beginning of September. So just a couple months yeah. ago. Did you, before the fires came, you know, you'd left the place where your home had been destroyed three times. So did you have a sense of security that then the fires really disrupted or were you already in that kind of we're ready to go mode like had that had that kind of come with you from texas it hadn't really because we thought we're so far away we're not going to flood here likely and that's all we could think well what other disasters are there (laughs) right and if we do my parents will make us leave because it's obviously us right but it we we just hadn't considered it at all. And then suddenly it was here again. So it was very much surprising. 
Yeah, absolutely. Did you and your husband respond really similarly to all of this? Or did you have different responses, different ways of coping? No, it was pretty much the same. It was just, you know, we need to grab these things, make sure they're in the car, make sure that we have the things for the dog and her food mm -hmm. and, you know, what just whatever's most important. And then trying to relay that to my parents. And of course, they're thinking, well, we have a whole house full of things that we've had since the beginning of time because <laughs> they never get rid of anything. Yeah and trying to help them. And then they're sitting like, you know, even if you don't have to go, let's just get these things ready. Yeah. Because at, at the beginning, we didn't know if we'd have to evacuate. But mm -hmm. with Stephen and I were like, well, let's just get our things ready. Because we didn't want a repeat of the times where we thought, well, we won't have to leave. So we don't get ready. And then you've got five minutes to throw everything in the car. Right. Now, some of the things where you live are not as movable because I'm, I believe you have at least chickens and maybe other living creatures on your property. How did you manage that? How, what did they do about the animals? So there are chickens and goats and an alpaca. <laughs> <laughs> and they did stay home, but there was also an amazing group that was out and, you know, we registered with them and they would check the area. And as long as it was safe, they would leave them there. Mm. So it's and a group it, that was like doing this for a bunch of different properties? Like, yes, they were yeah. doing it for the area. And I believe it's a, a national group, I believe. And they were mm. also in California uh, for having those. So they had everybody kind of branched out. And then if the animals were in danger or anything, then they would load all of them up because to have so many, it's, it's hard for us to just, I mean, we're not going to put them in the car and, and take them to a motel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they were picking up animals and they were boarding them and all of that. Thankfully, no one in our immediate area had to do that, but right. we were on that list just to make sure that it was taken care of. It sounds like one of the real key things to all of these experiences is about the resources, like knowing your resources, looking up your resources. And I'm guessing as you've had more and more disasters threaten your home, you have more of those resources kind of at your fingertips, like you know what, where to turn. What, what advice would you give for people who, you know, can't yet imagine that their home could be destroyed? Like what kind of planning, what, what low level planning do you think people could do that would make a big difference if their home is threatened? So first I would say, you know, make sure that you know where your important paperwork is, you know, all your insurance documents, at least have access to them online so that you can, you know, see what your policy covers. Read through all of that fine print, make sure that it really covers the things that you need it to. And mm -hmm. kind of with the intention of, you know, if something happens, will this be enough to make it right for me? You know, mm -hmm. your, your level of insurance. A lot and, of people buy insurance and then 10 years will pass and they haven't given a second thought to how sure. and the, the things they own have changed. Right. And they don't add in, well, now I own this big item and that I would like to, you know, replace. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of times people get a lower policy, just it's cheaper. So, mm -hmm. you know, and admittedly, mostly we don't use insurance, right? You know, 
Yeah, but, we don't want to use insurance. Right. <laughs> so we don't want to pay a lot for it, but sometimes it's a very small amount in premium increase that'll cover a lot more. And I think that's really worth looking into. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, they will just do a portion of what your items are worth and what your home is worth. Yeah, because just like we don't want to use insurance, insurance doesn't want to give us any of our money back. Right. That, right. Is, the, that is the goal, <laughs> is to not pay out money. Yes, they want to keep it and we want to keep it. And, and it's a push and pull. Now, you're, yes. you are a bookkeeper. You help people with their money. For people who aren't fluent in money, and I'm pointing a finger at myself right now, going through an insurance policy, going through your books at all, even balancing your checkbook or whatever, can be really daunting for people. So, and I mean, some insurance agents are really good about checking in with people like once a year and saying, let's go through your policy. And even if they are, not everybody's good about calling their insurance agent back to sure. do that. <laughs> Other agents, like they'll sell you a policy and never hear from them again. So how often do you think people should be reviewing these things? And do you think it's important to have people who are proactive and helping you? Like what's been your experience with that? I do. So with our first two floods, our agent never called us hmm. one time. We never heard from him, never dealt with him. And I don't want to say I took it personally, but sort of, because I mean, we live in the yeah, same he has area. One job. Yes. I know that you know <laughs> that my house is underwater. You have to see that these claims coming in yeah. and never heard a thing. And so there was no assistance or anything. And I had switched our car policy and was with someone else. And that agent actually helped walk me through a lot of the things, even though it wasn't his policy. Wow. And, you know, it doesn't benefit him at all, but it, it meant a lot that he would provide that assistance and help out. So when I look for insurance agents, I kind of look, you know, who's going to be there when you have a problem, mm -hmm. not just when you need to buy a policy. Yeah. So, and what do you think are signs of that kind of an agent when you're trying when you're trying to choose one? Because they'll talk a good game. Any salesperson yes. will. <laughs> so I'm not positive what you know. We happen to have already had a you know relationship with the with the car and everything, but and he was also an agent for several people that I worked with, so he was referred to me. Mm -hmm. So I think it does help, you know, if you know someone, go tell people that you know about them and mm -hmm. ask your friends and family who they use and what they like about them. What you just said there, that second part was really important because people will say, you know, I need whatever, I need a good manicurist, mm -hmm. but what does good mean, right? So being, right. we're asking for referrals from people, making sure that we say what, what I'm looking for is somebody who will call me once a month and check in or won't, you know, <laughs> like right. be clear right. about what good means to you when you're asking people for references. Yes. Yeah. Let them know what you're looking for. Say, I want somebody who's responsive, who, you know, who doesn't just disappear and hand it off to somebody else because it's really nice to just have the one point of contact. You don't mm -hmm. want to go through their 800 number and be transferred to five different people. And every time you call it someone new. Yeah. Cause that's frustrating enough when you're just trying to pay a bill, but when you're yes. in the middle of having something destroyed, you don't need that extra stress. No, yeah. no. So that made a big difference for us. Just changing insurance agents. It made the process 
go a lot smoother, you know, just be able to call one person, say, hey, what, what do I need to do? Can you help me with this? Point me in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And then I also think it's important to know what the emergency resources are available near you. Uh, There's usually like a county emergency services, whatever county you're in. And I would, before you're in the position, maybe, you know, check out what resources they have. And that's, so obviously most people would think I'll just call 911. So why are you feeling like knowing your resources is, is important as opposed to just calling 911? Well, if you've, if you've got a natural disaster, 911 resources are so limited. I mean, you have so many people calling in and you don't want to bombard them with things that are maybe you feel are an emergency, but really aren't so much, you know, they they're not going to help you with where should I go or how do I get there? Mm-hmm. Where do I stay? Those sorts of things. But hopefully your county has something set up enough to be like, these are evacuation sites. These are things that we help with if you're having a disaster, those sorts of things. In Texas, that was a really, a really good service. Maybe because they're used to it. They've had it happen <laughs> a lot. But they were the first people that you're supposed to call in that situation. And then they were, you know, they take down your name and your information and they collect that so that they can afford it to FEMA. So because that determines the amount of federal funding mm. that's set aside. It depends on the number of people who are affected, the number of homes. That's interesting. So you're saying that because some people will be very self-supportive, self-resilient. They'll be like, I am not going to phone this in because there's too many people calling it in and I'm just going to make do on my own, especially if they don't maybe have flood insurance for some reason or whatever mm-hmm. they're needing. But it sounds like it's actually, it's not just on your own behalf that you're reporting that your home has been destroyed, that this is actually related to the entire funding that's going to be coming to support this disaster. Yes. So it, helps with your neighbors. It helps with your whole community because it determines how much help will be available and not just, you know, insurance money necessarily, but also resources available if they have shelters, if they have food, Mm -hmm. cleaning supplies, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. You know, speaking of community, it seems like when, when these disasters happen, we always see these wonderful moments of community happen on the news. Did Mm -hmm. you, what did you experience in terms of connecting with other humans throughout this process in any of these disasters? Sure. And all of them, that, that is what happens. Everyone comes together and, and it's really heartwarming and it's, it's really nice because these people are in the same position as you. And to just be around them and, you know, you don't necessarily have to talk about that. You're all in the same boat, mm-hmm. to speak. And, and it's nice to share resources with each other. And, you know, I found this here to help. And then you can say, well, you know, I came across this. And then together you just kind of make do. People go and they help each other clean their houses out, rebuild them. And the same was true here for the fires, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone's together. We're all out of our homes. None of us know what we're going back to. And, and it's just very nice to have that sense of community. One thing I will say, mostly for people who are helping, who are volunteering and helping in these, is to not forget about, about these things after it goes back to normal, because a lot of those people go home to nothing, you Mm -hmm. know? 
and they still need support and nobody thinks to check on it's like out of sight out of mind you know there's not big right. groups of people anymore but there are still individual families and several of them how, so. how do you think is a good way to keep that in mind and to be of service after the obvious crisis has passed i think maybe for the for the larger people you know like the companies who are helping you know still have something available red cross even because once people are home these i don't know what you say companies but you know they they pack up they move on to the next thing the shelters close everything so even if these people don't have a place to go to they can no longer stay at the shelter because you said it took you eight months to get back into yes. your home yes i mean that's a better part of a year we're living mm -hmm. with someone else and not everybody has that not everybody lives near family or has right. family that they can stay with for that extended period of time on an individual level you know check in with people that you know that have gone through it you know see what they're needing and sometimes they won't know what they need honestly you know it's all very overwhelming but just make a point to touch base and and check on them because you're still trying to let to run your regular life in the midst of all this right mm -hmm. you're trying to do your job you're trying to like pay your bills what's something that would have been incredibly helpful and it can be as simple as money what's something that would have been incredibly helpful about six months five months after the disaster if somebody had been wanting to reach out just just even a general hey was thinking about you sort of a thing just so because at that point at that stage it was mostly emotional for me you know you let go of okay well i you know all my things are gone my house is gone whatever and then it kind of goes in waves sometimes mm -hmm. and just grief like like you would with losing someone you love it's just a part of your life is gone and you're trying to make sense of it and you feel like you're alone a lot because mm -hmm. you know well nobody i know's house <laughs> is destroyed <laughs> so they don't know and then they don't think about it and and just just checking in that way too just helps a lot just be like you know i understand that you're going through this not just oh well that happened a few months ago and why aren't you fine now yes life <laughs> went on <laughs> it, it does sound very much like like a grieving process like you lost something very important to you and if, if somebody had lost a person or even a pet then people know six months later you're still missing that right person. and so it sounds like you're saying these these disasters are the same way and to just say how are you doing today can go a long way to saying i still see you and i still see what you're going through yes because you you lose your sense of security and you lose the life that you thought you were going to have mm -hmm. and it's very overwhelming yeah so what I'm, gives you hope what keeps you hopeful and bothering you know i i think in a lot of ways things have gone together how they're meant to maybe not ideally or how we'd planned yeah. <laughs> but it did all come together you know we we chose to come here after thinking you know we do we buy another place in texas you know and without well more and more places are are flooding places that haven't flooded before so how can we feel safe anywhere here mm -hmm. and then it was also combined with well i work for really great people i don't want a different job i don't mm -hmm. 
you know, I think we've all had that experience where you work with people that are not great and you have bosses that don't care or, and you kind of find that out the hard way too. And it's like, I don't want to have to start over that way. And I had already started doing bookkeeping on the side. Mm-hmm. And my employers had actually encouraged that. They sent people to me. They're like, hey, have Sarah help you, you know? Nice. And and then when we're thinking, well, where are we going to live? And it's like, well, this is something that I can take with me and I can do. And I don't have to worry about how are we going to eat? How am I going to make money, mm-hmm. you know, if we have to move wherever? So um, actually developing a career path for yourself that can literally pick up and go with you yes part of your security system now it is and that's when i really started pushing i was like i think that this is the time to do that you know with so much uncertainty at least i know that i have that and i can i can take it anywhere with me and then we ended up with oregon you know my Mm -hmm. parents are here and we hadn't intended to stay with them for this long but you know, with COVID and everything, it's, it's kind of made that necessary too. You know, they're older, my mom's at high risk. So it makes me feel better to be there with them and to be able to help them. And it just kind of things feels like everything aligns. So even if bad things have happened, we're still on the right path, maybe. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. You just reminded me that you're going through these fires in the midst of COVID. So yes. you can't just go pile into a hotel with a bunch of other humans because you're worrying about the virus at the same time. Yes. So, so wow. Yeah, it was very stressful. <laughs> the first night we stayed in our cars and, and everybody else did too. Yeah. We were all sent to a parking lot and it was sort of last minute and we're all just you know, at the grocery store parking lot, everybody's sleeping in their cars. Uh, I have to ask, bathrooms, did they set up porta-potties? Could you use the grocery store? <laughs> yes, so we, we we went to the grocery store. Okay. <laughs> there was also a restaurant nearby, but, you know, also trying to avoid a lot of that too. Yeah. And then thankfully, we had family that uh, brought their fifth wheel down for us to a different parking lot we were moved to. Mm. And so then we had some facilities there and we we could be contained, you know, we weren't with a bunch of people. We could stay just with each other, but they set up food and porta potties and everything for people to go to. But you weren't, I mean, the, the, the smoke from the fires got all the way up here to Seattle and was affecting Mm -hmm. people's health. So you weren't even that far away. So I'm assuming the air quality wasn't super, even though you're weren't, you weren't in imminent danger. Right. No, it was horrible. And we were wearing masks outside, even when we weren't near other people, just Mm -hmm. to try to block out some of that smoke. Yeah. Headaches, everything. It was. And did that get in the way of that community you were talking about before? Because you can't just come together. Or did you still see examples of that community support? We did still see it. There were there were a lot of us and the, they moved us to the mall parking lot. So we were mm-hmm. all at the mall and, <laughs> and we were far enough away from each other, but we could still talk to each other, you know, keep your distance and talk to people. We'd all go and get food and, you know, they would set up tables, restaurants would come and deliver. And it, there was just a real outpouring at the beginning. But then of course, when some people are allowed to go home, their evacuation levels lower those of us that were still in the mandatory evacuation didn't have the same 
resource. It was kind of like, well, maybe you should find somewhere else to go. And like, hmm. well, this is where you sent us. We don't have anywhere else to go. Right. Where were um, you getting that, that message from, from the local like restaurant people or from the, the um, security people? No. So it was the county, the county came. They just said to said, you, maybe you should find someplace else to go. Well, at first they said, you know, people are going home, but you'll still be able to stay as long as you need to. And then by that night it was, okay, so we were wrong. You've got till Friday, which was wow. two days away. It's like, okay, we'll try to figure something out by then. And then the next morning they said, yeah, Friday, everyone will have to leave, but we're taking the porta potties today. The food's the last day for food is, you know, lunch today. And and it was very abrupt. But you were still under a mandatory evacuation from your home. Yes. So by so legally you can't like well, they can't stop you. Or can they right. can they stop you from going home? So if they have roadblocks and things, but you know, during those times they've got other things to do. And there are a lot of people who never evacuated, hmm. just like they don't with floods and they don't with fire, you know. Yeah, they want to stay yeah. with their home. And then it does make it harder for first responders when you know, the fire's in your backyard and you need saved now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you didn't have to put anybody mm -hmm. in that position. So, but you were mandated and directed to leave your home and also being told now you have no support. Yes. That's exciting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it is something that I think our county should work on, which is yeah. why I also recommend to see what resources your county has available before you're in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, this is a different kind of a conversation, you know, because most of the people I talk to are like settled in their homes and maybe they've had some ups and downs, but they're in a good place and you are still figuring it all out. It sounds like. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We, we really are. What do you hope for, for your future? What kind of homes are you hoping are part of your future story? I hope to, I hope to get back our sense of security with, you know, this can be our permanent home, wherever, you know, whatever it is that we choose, because it, it is nice to have one place that, you know, you're connected with. And, but then part of me is also, you know, becoming more at peace with maybe that's not how this works. Maybe <laughs> So trying to find a balance, I guess, because either way, I think would be, would be okay. <laughs> do you feel, you know, there's a whole movement around minimalism and, and living more mm -hmm. lightly and you've that sort of been forced upon you. <laughs> is there any sense of freedom or lightness that comes with this story as well? Yes, I think so. At first it was really hard because we had so many things. <laughs> we, we didn't get rid of anything, you know, so it was an overwhelming amount of things that were gone and then suddenly left with very little but it is kind of freeing because, you know, all of our important things will fit in the car and we can just go. And at the same time, it's like, well, <laughs> maybe that's not ideal. You know, how much of a home can you make with things that just fit in the car? So yeah. it, it's definitely trying to find a balance there. But, you know, if you're not sure where you want to be or you don't know what your path is, then it's definitely freeing to just. I can just grab everything and I can go wherever I want to. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious to have another conversation with you in a few <laughs> years to see where you end up landing. Yes. Hopefully with no more disasters under your belt. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> 
So tell me, in, in the home that you have right now, what is one thing that does actually make you seriously happy that you really love about your place and your space and your situation right now? So we've been doing some remodeling to kind of make it more our own to feel, you know, since this is becoming more of a long-term thing, you know, to try to make it feel like home a bit. Mm -hmm. And we installed a a propane, it's like a wood stove. So a propane heat stove, and mm -hmm. it looks like the wood stove and it's very cozy and very inviting and it just makes it feel very homey. So I would say that that would be my favorite part just because it makes it seem more like a home to me. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I hope it leaves people with some resources and some some plans and, and also sure. some hope if they found themselves in the same kind of a situation. Where can folks find you if they are looking for bookkeeping services that I understand are all virtual, right? So you can work with anybody anywhere? Yes. Yes. Given that you want to be able to pick up and go? <laughs> yes. And, and especially with COVID, I think that's helpful. A lot of companies going that way. So it's nice to have already had established processes for that. Yeah. But sure. I mean, you can still have somebody help you with your books without physically being there with you. And, and I think that's a, a great way for us to go forward. Yes. <laughs> so they can find me on my website and that's just ulcbs.com and also on Facebook under ULCBS. Wonderful. And of course that link will be in the show notes as well. And to our listeners, I hope that you enjoyed hearing Sarah's story, that it gives you a bit of hope if you're finding that you are facing your own home crises, which can be as big as a hurricane or as small as having rats in your floorboards like I do right now. There's always something trying to destroy our little home happiness, right? But I hope that this all leaves you feeling encouraged and empowered to make your home your happy place, no matter what obstacles get thrown at you. If anybody out there feels stuck, please do check out my book, Happy Starts at Home. It's full of exercises that are meant to help you figure out why your current home isn't working for you and help you identify what changes you can make, what control you do have over your own happiness in your own space. And if you have a specific design dilemma in your home, you can always reach out to my team too, because as we were saying, the internet is magic and through Zoom, we can help you no matter where you call home. In the meantime, no matter where you call home, I do hope that it makes you seriously happy. Until next time.